Hey everyone, and welcome to the WPB Health Consulting Podcast, where we bring clarity to coaching. If you're a first-time or former guest, we want to welcome you here or welcome you back. Our mission is to bridge the gap between research, anecdote, and practical application for competitors and coaches. So please check out our page at WPB Consulting on Instagram and Facebook to learn more about our guests in our coaching services. Guys, get excited because on today's podcast, we have a bodybuilding coach and true craftsman of the sport, Mr. Paul Serafini. Paul has built his coaching practice around his foundation in the academic setting, where he has had multiple peer-reviewed published articles. In addition, as a coach, he's had extreme success with competitors in the NPC and IFBB bodybuilding divisions. Paul's approach to coaching is rooted in the application of the academic and practical coaching expertise to enhance the experience and potential of his clients as they move toward their strength and physique goals. Paul has his master's degree in applied exercise and health science. He is not only a researcher, educator, and coach, but also just an awesome individual. Today we will be discussing nutrition training in the anabolic discussion of anabolic agents on bodybuilding prep and performance. So if you're an enhanced competitor or even a natural competitor, this podcast is for you. Please check it out and let us know how we can help you bring clarity to coaching. As a medical disclaimer, all content found on the WPB Health Consulting pages, including text, images, audio, or other formats, were created for informational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your medical physician or other qualified health providers with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've read or heard on the site. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call your doctor, go to the emergency room, or call 911 immediately. Reliance on any information provided by WPB Health Consulting, employees, writers, or medical professionals presenting content for publication to WPB Health Consulting is solely at your own risk. The site may contain health or medical-related materials or discussions regarding anabolic agents. If you find these materials offensive, you may not want to consider listening to this podcast. Links to educational content are not created by WP Health Consulting and are taken at your own risk. WPB Health Consulting is not responsible for the claims of external websites and education companies. Thank you. All right, what's up, everybody? This is Austin from the WPB Health Consulting Podcast. Today, I have a very, very special guest from Gifted Performance, Mr. Paul Serafini. He is the OG when it comes to discussing contest prep and ultimately discussing a natural versus enhanced prep. So I wanted to bring him on here to give his expertise and tell us a little bit more about how we can practically apply this a little bit more efficiently and let's get into it. But uh, so I'll give a little bit of background about Paul here quick, but he's ultimately built his coaching practice guys from the foundation of the academic setting. He's currently working as um, a coach and instructor um, for Kennesaw State University's Strength and Conditioning Lab. Um, it looks like he just completed his graduate degree in exercise and health science. In addition to being a teaching, um, he spent a lot of time as a research assistant at the university and authored numerous 
uh, peer-reviewed published articles and abstracts, but truthfully, his approach to coaching is rooted in the application of his academic and practical coaching expertise to enhance the experience and potential of his clients as they move toward their strength and physique goals. So, so Paul, I know that was a little bit of an intro, but I know you're a lot more in depth than just instructor and coach and all that combined, but tell us a little bit more about yourself and tell us about your journey and how did it start for you? Yeah, man, actually. Uh, so yeah, I, I definitely, uh, I, I finished my master's what sometime last year. And so I'm actually not instructing anymore, kind of done with the whole graduate school, graduate assistant thing now, just full-time coaching. But uh, yeah, man, I mean, dude, originally I got into lifting, like, you know, I joined the army around 18 and I just wanted to get super jacked, man. Started lifting, got really, I was always really interested in the uh, enhanced side, but you know, got really into the whole natural bodybuilding scene for a really long time as well. Like I trained for like seven years natural. Um, the only reason I never competed as a natural is just, I, I just took things like way too seriously, got burned out for a really long time. And it took me a while to really just, I, I kept lifting, kept the eating up, but just really become more passionate about bodybuilding again. And uh, yeah, man. So throughout like my undergrad and my math or mostly my undergrad, I picked up coaching here or there, but just I lacked a certain level of maturity, you know, and basically like, cause you know, like as a coach, people are sort of depending on you and it really doesn't matter if you have like a good day or a bad day, you have like a, a job to do. And just at that age, at that time, not having a ton of experience, not working with a lot of people, it was just a bit of a struggle. And then through my master's, I actually just sort of hit a point where um, I was financially struggling and stuff, like went through some things, decided to give coaching like another go. And this time went into it with just the mindset of like, hey, because early on, I did a lot of free coaching and stuff with like friends. And, you know, it, it it's kind of... I know everybody talks about like how this should be like a passionate thing. They don't do it for the money, but like when, when you're not making much money from something, it's really easy to be like, Oh, I'm just going to watch Netflix tonight and uh, I'll write the program in the morning. But like when you're like making decent money and like people are paying you for a service, it, it can be like a real motivator to be like, Oh shit. Like I, I have to do this. Like I work for this person. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so that was like a big, uh, I guess contributing variable into like kind of pushing me to want to be successful in coaching as well is it, just sort of seeing that growth and like, you know, having it be able to sustain me in my life as well, you know? So, um, yeah, man. I mean, originally I went to school because I, I wanted to be a physical therapist. You know, I didn't really know what options there were for me, you know, coming out of the army and just being like, Oh, you get out of the army and you go to college. Mm -hmm. Uh, but then throughout undergrad, I started, uh, I got the opportunity to start doing research and such. And then that really picked up and became a passion of mine. And so I went on to get my master's and I continued doing research, got a little bit of teaching in. And for a while, the goal was to uh, kind of go all the way through and become a professor. And coaching just ended up being a lot of fun taking off and you know, I may go back for that PhD and eventually go for it. But right now, like, I'm, I'm just kind of having fun doing what I'm doing, you know? Yeah, I love 
your your client success is one thing it speaks for itself but also you can see the passion in your voice i mean how far you've come truthfully i mean one of the things too is i don't know if you guys have checked please check out their page the gifted performance page and specifically paul's page um and we'll include all that in the bio but truthfully like applying your craftsmanship towards like you said you know a product you know of working with clients, being in high demand, you're, you're doing an excellent job. I mean, you're true craftsman of your work, but um, continuing that, I, I love to hear like your background and your history behind it because not everyone knows, right? Like I think yeah. another thing, like you said, like when you're working for essentially no money, you're like, I'll write the programs in the morning type thing. Like <laughs> that's kind of like going through the motions, like what most beginning coaches who have no idea what they're doing. And then finally you kind of gain traction with that and, you know, you figure out what works and then you become passionate about it and then it becomes a true career. I mean, I mean, that's what you're doing. So excellent, excellent work. Moving on to the next thing here. I mean, you're going to talk about so many different variables of nutrition. Um, you know, we're going to talk about like the anabolic discussion. And then lastly, about training. A couple of things I want to preface here before we get into it is not only does is this a lot of anecdote, but also it is a lot of evidence what we're going to talk about here today. So let's get into it. Um, so tell me about your, what your clients go through um, specifically and what you're looking for in bodybuilding rates of gain slash loss. You see typically with your enhanced clients during a full season, what does that kind of look like for you? Yeah, man, I think you got to kind of be careful. Um, you know, with a, especially when it comes to dieting, like with a natural individual, body weight is a really great indicator um, because outside of special circumstances, you know, like maybe somebody's obese or they had a hiatus from training. A lot of times that there's not as much, there just aren't as many variables that play into body weight, like rapid changes in fluid retention or um, really rapid changes in body recomposition and stuff like that. So like, I think with enhanced individuals, you can get, in a really weird place if you focus too hard on rate of gain when it comes to body weight. So, uh, you know, for, and we, we can actually relate this very easily to say the dieting period, because a lot of times, um, let's say an individual is off or they're cruising and what cruising means that is that they're on something closer to a uh, physiological dose sort of meant to allow them to regain their health and things like that. Maybe even uh, the psychological aspect of just getting a break. And so they're in this period and then they go into dieting and they uh, go to super physiological ranges. They do their blast or their cycle. You know, it's very common for within those first handful of weeks to get an increase in fluid retention. And so their body weight may escalate you know, on average, maybe one or two kilograms. So that may completely mask any sort of fat loss that's going on. And so you're thinking, oh man, or if you're not experienced um, or you're a self-coach, you're thinking, man, I, I should be losing weight right now, but I'm not. I, I gained weight or my weight stayed the same. And so then you start chopping more calories, you start adding more cardio, um, which puts you in a predicament where you're just dieting harder than you need to. And, and you may not even be getting the full benefits of the compounds you're using and stuff like that. Does that make sense? Yeah. So basically what you're saying is you can see a lot of fluid retention right away. And that's like you said, like could be a red flag if you weren't 
like you said, experience or not understanding truthfully, like what could be happening because your dosage of, you know, what your body is like upregulating more than typical normal circumstances, like you were saying. No, exactly. And then, um, you know, uh, when, when I design protocols and work with people, a lot of times your starting dose is not going to be static and stay that way throughout the entire course, you know, whether that be six, sure. 14 weeks, 16, 20 weeks. And so often, you know, dosages may escalate, certain things may come out, certain things may come in, and these can affect body weight in a variety of ways, whether it means weight goes up, weight goes down. And so accounting for that um, with other forms of feedback are really important, like photos, measurements, things like sure. that, especially photos. Um, and then even so with the rate of gain, you know, um, and a lot of this, it's so individual because people have different responses. People are different points of their training career. Uh, people are using different amounts of various compounds. And so uh, I, I would say like on average, you know, maybe let, let's say over like a 16 week course, I do like to see something on average with, let's say I'm like working with somebody for the first time, we may start off with a, um, on average one pound per week. Also, I think uh, another really big indicator too, is really because our, our biggest you're, you're just not even when somebody's enhanced and they're gaining at a super physiological rate like it's not something that you can just see from day to day or week to week right mm -hmm. so i think using performance as a indicator for how things are going is going to be huge uh, because that, that's our most valuable short-term indicator that things are moving in the right direction as well so like if performance is good um maybe we aren't seeing the uh you know, one pound a week rate that uh, we, we might have sort of started off aiming for, but like photos could tell a different story as well. So just taking all of that into account together. Yeah, I think you have a lot of really good uh, variables of discussion there. Um, specifically, I like how you highlight um, your feedback, truthfully, um, because like individualized approach, right? Like pictures and seeing like performance, um, based numbers are you talking about performance based numbers in the gym specifically is that kind of like what you're looking at and trying to go for yeah exactly man so sort of seeing like you know one in the short term just from week to week like if we increase load th this week did we see reps maintain within an appropriate uh repetition reserve or effort level uh, did we see reps increase? If we left weight the same, did we see reps increase? And then over the long term, I really like uh, sort of taking like the final week of a program or looking at various numbers throughout a program and sort of estimating uh, you estimating a um, theoretical max. Mm -hmm. And so from phase to phase or every couple phases, sort of seeing that estimated max increase. I love it. Yeah, I think. Uh, Paul does an amazing job of highlighting, especially for coaches out there, what to look for. Um, and he po points out a lot of different variables, but we're going to discuss those here in a second about training.
a contest prep competitor and we're trying to see like if they're on whether they're on cycle in the off season or they're coming out of a contest prep what are some things that you recommend for looking at from numbers wise um, in regard to their labs yeah man so getting labs is huge man so that that's something i like to have done within some reasonable time frame before committing to any sort of cycle and then also um, shortly at, thereafter a cycle, maybe somewhere in that eight to 12 week range and, you know, sort of assessing those numbers and using that as sort of also guidance to, hey, how, how much longer do we need to sort of take this break before mm -hmm. we're ready to sort of, you know, go back on or start planning for the next course. Um, so actually I have some labs here, which actually might be helpful. Um, I'll, I'll have them get a uh, complete blood count along with a uh, comprehensive metabolic panel. Mm -hmm. So those two are going to be big. Um, the complete blood count is going to be your hematology and then comprehensive metabolic panel is going to be, you know, that it's going to show values relating to kidney health, liver health, mm -hmm. and um, let's see. Hemoglobin A1C, that's another one that we'll look into uh, relating to uh, basically your, I guess you can consider insulin sensitivity, just overall glucose management. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes we'll look at thyroid numbers, depending on the person and, and sort of what's going on. I think it's good to occasionally do that. Total testosterone can be useful. Estradiol can be useful. But like one of the biggest things, when I get a set of labs, like the first thing I kind of, you know, I got the labs. The first thing I sort of flipped to or in the PDF is kidney markers. So uh, creatine, um, EGFR, and uh, blood urinary nitrogen. Mm -hmm. Because that, that's the one sort of thing that very immediately, if those numbers don't look good, like you have something to worry about, and this could end your bodybuilding career, you know? Um, liver would be a secondary thing. ALTAST is sort of the standard, most general. Mm -hmm. um, that's important too, but the liver, you know, is, is fairly resilient. I mean, obviously you can push it too far sure. and you can, even though it's resilient, like I, I don't think a lot of people realize that you can cause somewhat permanent damage, you know, like you, you can scar your liver, you, you can, um, you know, there are reports of people potentially even getting like liver tumors over time, like abusing certain compounds, oral compounds, stuff like that. So, um, and then from the kidney values, especially like, because heart training can make some of these values look worse than they maybe actually are. So like sure. if you're dehydrated or you train really hard and you get a, a lot of muscle damage, because you have to realize what you're measuring in the blood, a lot of it is, especially when it comes to kidney markers, like byproducts of metabolism, mm -hmm. right? Yep. So you do a really highly damaging workout and you get blood markers the next day, like your creatinine, uh, blood urinary nitrogen could be high. Um, or your dehydrator or something like that. So it becomes really important to make sure they take a certain number of days off, make sure they hydrate going into the test. And then also, you know, often it's not uncommon for as people get, as people get larger too, for one or two of these values to look weird. So like, let's say creatine looks good, but uh, bun and EGFR or creatine is a little high 
but bun and EGFR look good. Well, it's like, okay, this could just be sort of like a weird thing. Let's make sure on follow-up labs, we keep an eye on it to make sure trends aren't moving in, in a negative direction. But then that's where we look at other values as well. Because like if, you, if your kidney health is impacted, not only are the kidney specific markers get probably going to look funny, but other things are going to look funny too, because your, your kidneys filter everything in your blood. Mm -hmm. So you might have um, high protein in your blood or potassium or just other various things. And that's where it really becomes an indicator like, oh, we might actually have a problem, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and then from that, with the uh, complete blood count, the biggest things I'll look at is... Uh, hematocrit, red blood cell count, and uh, hemoglobin. A uh, very common side effect of most uh, anabolic steroids would be the, the increase in those markers. And so that's one thing that is also pretty, ha or potentially hazardous to short-term health. Like you get a stroke if your RBCs are too high, your hematocrit's um, too high as well. So that's something to look out for. So are you discussing like reference ranges? That's kind of like what you're trying to stay within. And if so, um, like, let's talk about one of those markers specifically, like creatinine specific, specifically, because you were like, you were saying, it's mostly like a byproduct, like you were saying, um, if they're way out of reference range or what if, what if they're like slightly elevated out of reference range, is that something that cause for concern, like red flags that you're kind of looking at trends over time? Is that something that kind of you're keeping an eye on or how are you kind of mitigating those with your clients? Yeah, man. So like right here, the reference range on uh, my blood work is 0.76 to 1.27. Somebody's 1.3. Like I'm probably not going to freak out, especially if it's just, once again, it's about looking at the blood work as a whole. Sure. You know, like I said, if the, if something's really wrong with the kidneys, most likely a lot of things on your values are going to look funny. So anyways, if somebody's just outside of the reference range, because you have to think about, I haven't looked into how they've come up with these reference ranges, but very often, you know, I mean, it's just the scientific process. You take a large sample of people and you see where sure. most of the people are. And then you have sort of these standard deviations. Um, it's very possible that somebody can be just outside of this range and be completely normal, completely mm -hmm. healthy. That's just where they sit. So going back to what you were saying, that's where we, you know, make note that, hey, the next time we get blood work, if it's bad enough, we may get blood work four to six weeks from now, but like if they're just outside the range. Hey, the next time we get blood work, let's make sure this isn't shifting in a negative direction. You know, mm -hmm. um, now if somebody, so I said the top of that reference range is 1.27 on, on these particular labs. If somebody's like much like one point, I'd say 1.5 is where I start to get concerned, especially, really, especially if they followed my protocol on how many days off to take, hydrating prior to the test. Mm -hmm. um, and then, because once you start approaching like two, like we're, we're in a dangerous zone, mm -hmm. like you're, you're in kidney failure zone. And, and that shouldn't just happen from, oh, I trained hard close to the test and like, um, you know, I didn't drink water that morning. Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, everything's just about perspective. And, and a lot of times just being outside of range 
for, for most of the values on your labs aren't a big deal. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I, I want to highlight another thing, especially from like, since we're in Colorado, we often see like hematocrits and hemoglobins that are relatively high because of altitude. So in, in our cases, we want to make sure, like you were saying, the trends, right? Like those are the big things, especially with altitude acclimation, acclimatization. That's a big thing that we look at too. Um, same with, I mean, truthfully, like you said, like all those, the, the whole blood work is essentially important, like we said, to kind of look for. But yeah, we see hematocrits and hemoglobins that are on the highest end of the, of the reference range. But it's important, like you said, to look at their lifestyle. You know, what are they doing? Where do they live? You know, looking at that from that side of things. So I think that's excellent that you highlight a lot of those. So I, I recently listened to like your, your guys' uh, discussion um, in, with John Jewett. I think that's who you guys had a podcast with recently. You guys discuss uh, IGF-1. That's something that is often measured with um, individuals who are on an anabolic, anabolics or a cycle specifically. Um, do you ever get concerned with like IGF? I know like if it's a higher risk for, for cancer and some of the side effects, but like when you're discussing that with clients who want to potentially enhance their physique is that like a common conversation that you discuss with them the risks and the benefits is that something that you guys discuss with them or do you kind of leave that up to them or what's what's the yeah man so that's i I actually haven't watched that podcast yet and it's not one that i was on i need to go back and check that out i'm sure there was a lot of really interesting stuff there because john jewett man i know he's a smart guy um and, and there's a lot of just really good stuff to say on a variety of topics. But, uh, you know, IGF-1, that is something that I'll look at sometimes, but a lot of times I'll use it as more of a, you know, let's say a client decides that they want to begin using growth hormone or something like that. Um, Sort of looking at their baseline IGF-1 and then, you know, how much that increases when they start their product. It's sort of like verification that Mm -hmm. the product works well and they're sort of getting what they want to out of the product. But um, in terms of, yeah, the, uh, I'll be honest, and maybe this is sort of short-sighted of me relating to um, sort of the cancer research and potential risks there. It's not something I'm very uh, knowledgeable on. Sure. I got you. No, that's, that's totally fair. Um, yeah. So I think that's something uh, that I was just now, curious. Actually, I will say this though, that it is, I will a lot of times, like, it's good to survey clients and be like, Hey, like, do you have like just heart disease run in your family? Or, mm-hmm. and a lot of times when you have the conversation and a lot of times if you bring up stuff like growth hormone, that's like the number one concern of people. And so like, they'll go ahead and tell you like, Hey, um, all the women on my mom's side have had breast cancer, you know, and you're like, okay, valid concern, you know, like, so yeah. Okay. I gotcha. That makes sense. Okay. Moving into the next question. Let's, let's get into it. So in regard to SARMs or anabolic agents, how do you discuss kind of like what we said, the side effects during a full season or prep with your clients? How do you kind of walk them through kind of some things that they might experience at certain times you know, whether it's, you know, their off season, whether it's, you know, six weeks out from a show or four weeks out from a show, how do you kind of work with your clients on that and discussing some of the psychological or physiological side effects that they might experience? 
Yeah, I actually think that's really important. Probably something I, I don't think I've, I've been asked a lot either. Um, for one, whenever a client is, especially if they're new to something, I always sort of urge them to do their own reading and sort of looking at things themselves and then come to me with questions, like ask as many questions. I think it's like the biggest thing is having that open line of communication so that, you know, one, they can feel like good about what they're doing. They can take ownership of what they're doing. And, um, you know, also when it comes to sort of learning about things and asking questions, I think that's how just a really great way to just become smarter and begin to sort of weed through like, oh, you know, this is how to find good information, sure. you know, and having those discussions with your coach or mm-hmm. somebody that you uh, deem um, knowledgeable that you respect within that aspect. And uh, yeah, so really, you know, because at, Every sort of compound, when it comes to like, especially like anabolic steroids, there are a lot of very similar potential side effects, mm-hmm. but then there are different, I guess, classes or families of compounds. Sure. Yep. And within those classes and families, there are going to be side effects that are more specific to a compound. And then occasionally you have a compound in a class that behaves completely differently than everything else um, within that class. So just sort of, you know, hey, we are going to use this compound for this purpose, you know, Uh, and throughout this course, here are some things you may want to look out for. Let me know if you notice anything weird with this particular set of side effects, or especially, uh, I think something that's undervalued is like stuff like just your general emotional state of well-being, your mood, your energy, um, and just having self-awareness, I think goes like sort of overlooked a lot of times too, because, mm-hmm. you know, after somebody really engages in this for some time and they take this really seriously, like there are some people who spend more time on than they do cruising or off. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes who you are as a person can become a lot more muddied than you would sort of expect it to, sure. you know, and, and having that foundation of who you are. So, um, but, you know, just for an example, random example, let's say somebody's going into their final six to eight weeks of contest prep and they're using a new compound. Um, first of all, I always, especially if something's new, start at a very low dose and sort of assess their tolerance. And that way, if, if something goes wrong on a low dose, we don't have that much of it in our bodies. We can go ahead and come off we can re- or reduce the dose or whatever. And we, we don't have as big of issues as if we just jumped into something larger. So like, you know, I'll, uh, can, can I mention doses in certain co- sure. uh, oh, yeah. compounds? Okay, cool. So like, you know, let's say it's somebody's first time using uh, Nandrolone, NPP, Nandrolone phenylpropionate. So there are a lot of people in this world that are just like, oh, you know, if you're not taking at least 300 milligrams a week of this, it, it's not doing anything. You're just pissing away your money. But it's like, no, drugs work. You put one milligram of drug in your body, it, it does something, you know. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll insert it at like 100 milligrams, right? Mm-hmm. And just ride that out for two or three weeks. Hey, are we noticing sort of any breast tenderness, any changes in mood, sexual function, 
all those things. Okay, we're good. All right, let's step it up a little bit. Um, and we continue that process until we're at like a place where it's like, okay, this is a sufficient dose to sort of get what we want out of it. Or let's say we make an escalation and something bad happens. It's like, okay, well, let's de-escalate to our last well-tolerated dose, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so, you know, like relating this to contest prep, maybe somebody is six to eight weeks out, they're going on oral winstrol. And let's say um, starting at like 25 milligrams a day, hey, you know, you may get some joint pain, whatever. And let's say that happens. Okay, this is an indicator to us that maybe we just need to ride this dose out for a little bit, wait for it to dissipate. And then we can sort of make moves towards reaching the dose that we were looking for for that desired cosmetic effect going into the show, mm -hmm. right? Right. Yeah, I think that totally makes sense. I think you put on a lot of really good points here, Paul, is identifying you know, the individualized approach to you know, understanding first what you're doing, in an essentially like a, a efficacious model of, Hey, how efficient can we be with, you know, not overloading? Cause I think you and I can both agree. There's coaches who are, like you said earlier, like if you're not using X amount of things or maxing out here, like already on your first, like say it's a first time competitor even, and they're just like, screw it. Let's just throw the kitchen sink at them. And, <laughs> and they're like, let's go. I want to see you do absolutely insane but this is all I know. Right. And it's really sad, but effective maybe. Yeah. But also like health, health wise, like they're probably screwed for the, for a long time. Whereas like you said, like, Hey, if I'm doing it efficiently, not see, like just working with them, asking them like, how are they feeling? You know, trying to be an effective dose, you know, not like maximal effective dose <laughs> um, and just working through things. I think that's, that's really what you're highlighting too. Um, no, yeah, definitely a hundred percent. Um, because you know, it's, especially after you've been doing this for a while and you know, you can imagine that somebody who has been doing this for a number of years, they've experienced a variety of side effects and a variety of just, you know, negative things. Mm -hmm. Um, it can be really nice to find out, Oh, I, I don't, I don't need um as much of this or if i use like this lower dose i get everything i, I want out of this particular compound mm -hmm. but i don't deal with like these certain negative effects um and then especially i think this whole sort of talking to clients and having that open window of communication and getting feedback especially when it comes to like mindset and mood and energy and their, their emotional state becomes so important towards the end of contest prep because especially even if somebody's like seasoned or especially if somebody is seasoned they may be using a variety of a lot of different classes of drugs mm -hmm. that can really impact your mindset in addition to just the end of a contest prep is hard like mm -hmm. you're not eating much food you're doing a lot of cardio you're probably um you know, uh, not doing a lot of social in, engaging. And so you, you can be in a really negative headspace. And so you take somebody like that and maybe you think they could benefit by lowering their estrogen or something. Mm -hmm. Well, I can tell you one of the worst feelings you could ever have as a male. A lot of people think it's low testosterone. It's not, it's low estrogen. Um, low estrogen will make you want to give up on life, like not get out of bed, no energy to do anything, depressed, high anxiety, no sex drive. So 
um, it, yeah, it becomes really important to, to have that communication, let people know what, what is potentially up ahead and then let them know that um, if they, if it does happen and, you know, cause there are some people where it's like, Hey, this isn't <clears throat> worth it. And there are some people that will look you in the eyes and be like, Hey, like I want to go there, you know? And yeah. it's like, okay, we're going there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just to let people know, like, Hey, this state of mind where you're at right now, it's not forever as well. Like, right. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah. Addressing. I think one thing too is, um, I saw recently on like your last competition, I'm, and I'm not saying like you had the same exact side effects or anything, but there, like you posted about like not going on stage potentially and like reaching out to people. And I think that's something that like, I mean, I know competitors who do that all the time. It's like, it's not necessarily just like just the drugs or anything like that. But like you said, like the full prep experience, like you're in deep and you're like, Hey, I'm willing to go to that space or whatever and push through it. But like knowing like the realistic lifestyle of like, Hey, is it real? like realistic for me to get there or, or having that conversation, like you said, I think you did, did a really good job of highlighting that. Um, but yeah, I think that's, that's something that, like you said, like if, if you're making those decisions as a coach, it's important to discuss that with your competitor specifically of, you know, where are you at with your headspace? Because that's something that's not often discussed. It's just like, Hey, here's the product of getting on stage. Like if you want to get there, let's do it. But like psychologically, can you do it? Yeah. It's a good, good, good extreme. Um, but yeah, man, I love that. So thanks for highlighting that specifically. For sure. Uh, let's talk about training then, uh, especially with your enhanced physique competitors. How are you focusing on performance in the gym? I know we discussed a little bit earlier, uh, but are the measures of success, you know, are you focusing on RIR specifically, on how they're successful with their loads? Um, or how are you discussing you know, their, their results in the gym. Yeah. So I think we mentioned this before, just your biggest short-term indicator of progress is going to be progression. So getting stronger over time, being able to do more reps over time. And so that's where I I mentioned doing one RM calculations to sort of compare that to previous training phases and stuff like that. Um, What's really interesting, man, I, there's like a particular individual that has talked about like very, uh, very specific, um, I guess, periodization protocols, I guess, programming protocols mm-hmm. with anabolic steroids. And a lot of people make things like just way more complex than it needs to be. And they're, they're changing all these variables all the time. And they're like, okay, we're going to work for, you know, mitochondrial density and efficiency in this phase. And then we're going to, you know, uh, train in a way for myocyte differentiation or satellite cell, whatever, Uh, just crazy stuff. But, you know, like, and, and when I first started coaching, I used to feel like everything, like every month, like a, a client needed a new phase or else like they it felt like I wasn't giving them their money's worth sure. but now these days you know it's just especially if training is progression pr- progressing a lot of times we we just keep running that we, sure. we run it into the ground mm-hmm. because like if you're changing shit all the time like 
you know, you, let's say bench press is our main movement for one phase and that's, you know, progressing and then you change it to incline press and then four to six weeks later, you change it to decline press. Well, now you have like no measure of mm -hmm. comparison mm -hmm. to see what has happened to, to your best indicator of short-term sure. progress, right? Um, and so uh, I think I went on a weird tangent and lost my train of thought on that so, one. So you're, you're talking about specifically like um, keeping things consistent, not making it over complex in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, man, just in general, hypertrophy training, like it is not as complex as a lot of people make it out to be like mm -hmm. training for sport performance can be very complex because you're training different systems mm -hmm. and uh skills and sure. things like that mm -hmm. but you know when it comes to hypertrophy are you doing enough volume are you getting stronger over time mm -hmm. or you know maybe even uh putting emphasis on components of mind muscle connection and ensuring you're you're training what what you're intending on training things like that but uh yeah, man. Feel yeah. like. Huh? So how do you, so let's go into that a little bit. So like, how do you coach? Cause I know like specifically um, you had this, this post the other day. You're like, I don't know why anyone would max out um, in, in, in the gym, oh. try to reach failure. Can you explain like the RIR purpose and like truth, truthfully of, you know, like that's really simple. Like that's a simple co construct of, here's four reps in reserve based on here's your numbers. Theoretically, you know, can you get yourself there? And, uh, versus like, you know, the, the and I see like coaches like Jared Feather post about this too, which is hilarious. He's like, he sees people who are always coming, just train harder. You don't need to be like smart about your calculations and your volume and your density and right. All of that stuff. And I totally agree with him, but explain to like those type of, you know, constructs of like training to failure and why that's, pretty much like shouldn't yeah so i mean you know training it's not like people won't get results training to failure frequently but a lot of times what people realize is that like it, it can make your training performance just really unpredictable along with your progression and so basically rir it basically is just a way to mitigate fatigue mm -hmm. right you leave a little bit in the tank and that way you can be more sure that you can sort of continually sort of push that training progression over time. And that you're not just going to like hit your chest on Monday, come in again to hit it on Thursday or Friday. And you're just like, oh my, we've all had that happen, right? Where we have this really hard session and you come back to hit the same muscle group and you're like, this weight, I did it really easily like three or four days ago. Like, why is this so hard now? Right. Mm -hmm. And just sort of, and there's a lot of stuff you can do with RIR, like if you can um, sort of link it to training uh, percentages and stuff like that, to where you're sort of, in a sense, leaving, leaving the room for load and rep progression early on in a phase. And what you'll notice is, because like people act like especially proponents of failure, they're just like, oh, you got to force the muscle to grow, right? Like it's the only way you, you absolutely force it to grow. But we have to remember like things in, in life are not a offer on switch most of the time. Mm -hmm. Like you're working within enough of a threshold to achieve adaptation and that uh, adaptive stimulus. But 
once again, not so hard that, that you're continually like, or unpredictably smacking into a wall. And what a lot of times you'll realize, so you save that room to sort of add load or reps or whatever, and you're working hard enough to get that adaptive response that what you'll find is, is or a lot of people find is that by the time they hit this, this point where their expected strength was here, they, they've adapted and now they're like this strong. Does that right. make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Like the concept of progressive overload, essentially, um, in strength adaptation makes absolute sense. But I think one thing too, I, I really want to highlight is, um, so with RIR and volume-based training for hypertrophy too, what do you, what are your kind of, this is just kind of off an off question. So what are your, what are your, uh, comparisons? Like you see like Mike is Rattel in the volume-based training in the stimulus is right. Like it's very much like an effective dose, very similar to like what we talked about earlier with whether it's nutrition or anabolics um, versus like, you know, the other side of the coin is like Eric Helms and team through DMJ who are like, Hey, let's just focus on good quality repetitions. You know, what, where do you kind of see, like, I, I understand like you're kind of in the middle ground. Like, where do you see where yourself, where you're at as a coach and discussing that with clients based on, trying to achieve hypertrophy based results um man i'm uh, so are you talking about sort of how mike and rp they are really into i guess manipulating volume as a primary variable yeah so so what are your kind of thoughts like you, you see them arguing against each other oftentimes like um i i see like a lot of like posts where um where they discuss, you know, here's our effective progression with our volume-based training. It's our primary variable. And then we accent that with load and RIR. Um, You know, what are your kind of thoughts on, on their programming versus, you know, like team 3DMJ or like a different team and kind of where are you guys? I mean, I think I, I lie in the middle, like you said, I think there is some utility to, um, sort of doing that stepwise set volume progression that RP does, right? Mm -hmm. Because then you can just start to kind of see things and pick apart like, hey, often when we do this number of sets, we start seeing a decline in performance, right? Right. Mm -hmm. We're not seeing as, so like there's utility there into sort of modulating volume over time or over weeks. I think there's also like a psychological benefit too. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of like having an intro week, I think even a lot of the 3DMJ guys like having an intro week because uh, mm-hmm. coming out of a deload and just smacking into your normal or your peak uh, number of sets and just writing that out forever, that can like really suck. Yeah. Uh, so it's nice to sort of ease back into training post deload. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think like, I think a lot of people maybe misinterpreted or maybe he's just sort of changed the way he does his volume stuff. Because I know when I first heard about the RP method of increased number of sets, you know, based on like feedback, originally it just didn't sound that methodical. It just sort of sounded or seemed like, or maybe I interpreted it wrong as like, Oh, we just add a set every week, like Mm -hmm. just cause forever, you know, like until we're doing 30 sets a week, per body part. Um, but 
you know, I, I think that there, like I said, there's utility to having some rank. I don't think it needs to be like, Hey, you start a training phase at 10 sets and you work all the way up to 20 or 25 or whatever, but a more narrow range, mm-hmm. just so you can kind of start to pick apart variables and, and maybe even like somewhat of a sweet spot for a particular person at a particular time, sure. you know? Um, yeah, man. So, and I probably, one thing I probably focus on more than the RP method is load increases. Like that is just, and a lot of that maybe is just comes from my own personal anecdote and biases. But like, you know, since the beginning of time, like we know if you get fucking stronger, like Mm -hmm. within an appropriate rep range and and Mm -hmm. amount of volume for training for hypertrophy, you know, like we don't necessarily need to get good at heavy singles, but like, you know, somewhere within that five to 15 ish range for the most part, uh, if we're getting stronger over time, doing a good amount of volume, like that just works when it comes to hypertrophy you know? Mm -hmm. So I probably place a little more emphasis on like load intensity. Um, Probably do a lot of the similar stuff in terms of effort levels and RIR. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do really agree with a lot like Eric Helms and um, what is it? Brian Miner recently, I think has gained some traction with this that like, Hey, if you're stronger today, that whatever you did yesterday, last week, the past two months, whatever, like that worked and that was enough volume. There's, it's really hard to argue for, let's just increase sets and see if we can get more. You know what I mean? Right, right. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Like the different types of feedback you're discussing, it sounds like. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, something that people are, people are talking about is the, the unicorn, right? Of like sarcoplasmic hypertrophy, right? Is that the indicator for true hypertrophy gains? And I've, I've had this question asked to a couple different coaches. So I'm just curious to hear your opinion on, you know, you know, whether you're like seeing a, like a pump or seeing potential benefits of like metabolic buildup can signal what you think in your clients as a good indicator for maybe like not necessarily long-term gains, but like short-term adaptations or progress or along those lines. And what do you think about that, the, the term in itself and the research revolving it? So sarcoplasmic hypertrophy, um, man. So it's been a minute since I've looked into that. I know it's, it, it was very recently. I want to say, was that the Hans study? Are you familiar? Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. the Hans study I yeah. think was the one that sort of brought that sort of back into the spotlight. Yep. Was that the one? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think there's a lot we don't know. Like, uh, and maybe people, maybe there's been some more information that's come out. But at first, it was just like, oh shit, this is one of the first studies in a while that has sort of indicated that sarcoplasmic hypertrophy might be a thing, right? And so there was just a lot of theory around it. Like, Hey, you know, as a bodybuilder, I guess it doesn't really matter if you look bigger you look bigger and that's kind of what we want, but like how long does that last? How easy is it to lose? Or, you know, I know a big part of the discussion early on was, Hey, is this actually just laying the track for future myofibrillar hypertrophy? You know, because we're seeing with the increase in uh, like sarcoplasm or whatever, there's, an increase in ribosomal proteins, mitochondria, and probably like 
hundreds of other things. Um, I remember going to a, a talk on the Cody Hahn study um, and the number of things that they sort of measured was insane, you know? And like, I have no idea what half of it was, but you know, I mean, and that is probably a reasonable sort of theory, but like, we don't know. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I think the whole sarcoplasmic hypertrophy thing, it, it's probably early on to, to really put either a lot of stock into it or, you know, mm -hmm. um, there, when you look at their training protocol, um, it, it was a really weird one. You know, it wasn't what, how I would think a lot of people training for hypertrophy would train. It was something like, it was an absurd amount of sets. It was a very low load intensity. Mm -hmm. um, and even the workout structure, I think was weird um, in terms of like how long they rested between sets. Mm -hmm. And so, cause I think, God, I, I'd hate to misquote that study because it's been a long time since I've uh, looked into it, but man, I felt like they were doing something insane, like 40 sets a week or something. Yeah, like, I think they were doing like 100, what they predicted, I want to say, is 120% of their true volume that they were doing in a previous training phase or something like that, 120% increase. And I don't, know how, I don't know how they calculated that off the top of my head, but insane high amount of, uh, of volume. So but like you were saying, it was at a very low training intensity, wasn't it? Yes. Like maybe, maybe 60%. I don't know. Um, and I want to say even, ha, ha, are you, are you very, very familiar with the study? Uh, I'm, I don't have it in front of me, but no, yeah. I, you know, I, I wish I could quote it <laughs> like you were saying, but. <clears throat> so like, I, I want to say it was something like, um, like you did a set I don't know. It, the rest breaks were just really weird. And I, I want to say like you did a set of a movement mm -hmm. and then you did another set of like a different movement and you like circled back around to it. I don't know, man, it's been a minute, Sure, but it, it was just very, so I, I don't know how much you can take that study and relate it to, you know, what is actually happening to people sure. in the gym. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cause we're a lot totally. of us are just training completely differently. Yeah. Um, different volume, different loading intensities, rest breaks even. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know if I'd put any stock into intentionally training for sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. Yet. Sure, sure, I got you. Yeah, I just wanted to hear your thoughts, and I think you did a, a great job of highlighting, you know, the differences, right? Like everyone's individually different, and it's something that has just kind of come back into light. I think that's something that like you said, it's gaining some traction popularity, but yeah. also I, I think they, in the discussion, they even said like, it's the unicorn. Like how do you measure true sarcoplasmic hypertrophy from like a, like a lab setting? You know, they, they're, they're still struggling with the, the, the methodology of, you know, how do we measure this? <laughs> you know, like in regard to like fluid, like they were, they were trying to do fluid models, I think at one point and trying to understand like, Hey, what, what would, be the best option for this. So I think, like you said, maybe it's something that's in the future, but I just wanted to kind of hear your thoughts and see if like, that's something that of training that you're looking forward to. Um, but I think that wraps up our, our podcast here today. I want to, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast here. And I can't wait to hear, get your guys' whole team on to discuss more like peaking variables and 
really identifying like, Hey, what are some things that we want to improve um, some transparency and clarity with? I mean, that's, that's a, my mission with this podcast is to kind of bring that out and also see different people's, you know, different coaches opinions on different things. And especially with working with multiple competitors, you know, whether it's enhanced or not, you know what I mean? So Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in to today's podcast with Paul Serafini. Paul is an awesome coach and we can't thank him enough for being on our podcast here today. If you guys have questions about coaching or how we bring clarity to coaching, check out our podcast and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at WPB Consulting. Last but not least, this podcast is done without ads, 100% free for you guys to use. If you guys want to support our project, please contact us and let us know how you can help support our podcast and gain momentum and how we can bring clarity to coaching. Thank you.